We're beginning at verse 10 tonight. In our study of the letter of Jude, we have learned how the intruders of verse 4 mirror the character of Old Testament evildoers. With unbelieving hearts, like the wilderness generation, the days of Moses, rejecting their proper domain or role, like the damned angels prior to the creation, refusing the proper order of sexual relations as the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. They do so, that is, they reflect this mirror of Old Testament evil rebellion, they do so on the basis of their claim to special revelation. Dreams, perhaps. Even claiming angelic visitations, perhaps, or angelic encounters through their dreams, as verse 8 suggests. Jude will now expand this paradigm in verses 10 and 11. And you will notice that I have repeated the structural outline from our last session, filling in the antithesis there with the word not, which was the opposite of the blasphemy of those men or these men on either side in verses 8 and 10. So that verse 10, as we begin, is part of a threefold structure that is, in fact, a chiastic mirror reflection. Verse 10 is a reflection of verse 8. You will notice the repetition of the word blaspheme or revile, which is duplicated. It's actually triplicated in these three verses. But since verse 10 is, in this chiastic arrangement, a mirror of verse 8, what exactly do these men not understand, as Jude indicates in verse 10? Is it specifically something in verse 8, or all three elements of verse 8, which we noticed in our last study, perform reflect a triplicate or a triad? I'm going to suggest that, in fact, what Jude is suggesting by this phrase, they revile things that they do not understand, is that, in fact, they revile or blaspheme Jude's doctrine, the teaching of Jude, not just in this epistle, but whatever teaching he had administered to this community before he sat down to write this letter. And as we noted, Jude's doctrine is a mirror reflection of his brother's doctrine, the Lord Jesus Christ. So they are rejecting what they do not understand, namely they do not understand the doctrine of Christ. Or, to put it more comprehensively, they do not understand the doctrine of Christ and the apostles and the servant of Christ and the apostles, namely the brother of Jesus, Jude. Now that uh, 
suggestion on my part uh, depends on verses 3 and 17. <clears throat> you will notice in verse 3 that Jude had emphasized that they were <clears throat> to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, which includes the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the apostles. In fact, the apostles are specifically mentioned in verse 17 of this letter. And so as a result, <clears throat> I believe that what Jude is doing here in verse 10 with this phrase is comprehensive. That is, it is a thorough summary of what they reject. These intruders will have no part either of his doctrine or of his brother's doctrine or of his doctrine, his brother's doctrine, and the apostles' doctrine. I think that shows itself in an example from verse 4 where if they are blaspheming here in verse 10, they are blaspheming the grace of Christ the grace of God in Christ. And notice what he says in that fourth verse. They are turning it into licentiousness. And that Greek word licentiousness in verse 4 refers to sexual licentiousness, something that we've noted in particular with respect to verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah, and verse 8, defile the flesh. All right, now, if my suggestion be sound, then this places in relief the the statement of the things that they do know. They do not understand or they do not know the doctrine of Christ properly, the doctrine of the apostles properly, the doctrine of Jude properly. What do they know? And in that verse, you will notice he indicates that they do know Items or elements of instinct. What comes by instinct they do know. And what does he associate that instinctual knowledge with? The way of Cain. Not the way of Cain. In verse 10. With animals. Yes, with animals. So... Let's consider this phrase, namely, they know by instinct what animals know. First of all, animals have no what? In this verse. They have no what, Marge? No reason. They have no reason. That is correct. Now, the next question, Marge, is why do they have no reason? Isn't it true that all dogs go to heaven? You just said animals have no reason. That's what it says in the text. Why don't they have any reason? are not created in God's image. <clears throat> the imago dei. <clears throat> it's a Latin phrase for image of God. So they are, <clears throat> in this uh, verse, they are unreasoning. We could say non-reasoning. <clears throat> they do not act discursively. They do not act 
by the process of ratiocination, that is, by processing data, <clears throat> not by the <clears throat> uh, by virtue of a rational faculty. Now, since they are non-reasoning or unreasoning, <clears throat> they are also what? Now, here <clears throat> we're looking for an extension beyond reason. They are non Moral. They are non-moral. They do not act by reason. They do not act by moral conscience. They have no conscience. They act, as Jude says, by instinct. They act instinctually. We might say they act habitually, that is, out of the habit of their nature. All right, well, when animals do act this way, that is, by instinct, do they act in accordance with the way God has created their nature to act? Indeed, they do. And do they, in so acting, thereby glorify God? They do. They do glorify God even without reason and even without moral compass. So, do they eat to the glory of God when they eat? They do. They are not conscious of that, but that is how God has made them. Do they drink to the glory of God when they drink? And do they procreate to the glory of God when they procreate? Indeed, they do. He has made all things to glorify him, and that includes the animal creation. So, with respect to instinctual acts, without or apart from the imago dei, they may eat in a non-rational way. They may drink in a non-rational way. They may exercise the organs of procreation in a non-rational way. They eat in a non-moral way. They drink in a non-moral way. They exercise the organs of procreation in a non-moral way. But they do all of that to the glory of God. Why did we not say that, or why does Jude not say, that they act irrationally? What is an irrational act? Ben? Yes, an irrational act would assume that they had a what? That they had reason, that they have a ratio, correct. So, you notice that we're not blaming them for what they do not have. We're not blaming them for being rational creatures. They are not rational creatures. They are instinctual creatures. Therefore, we don't regard them as acting immorally because they have no moral compass. So when that uh, big cat kills that lady in that uh, refuge, is that a moral act on the part of the cat? It's not a moral act. It's an instinctual act. It's an act either of self-defense because it was felt threatened or it's an act in which it felt uh, trapped. All right, so 
An irrational act would be one contrary to true reason or to right reason. An immoral act would be an act contrary to proper morals or true morals. In the Bible, you find no divine moral commands addressed to animals. You find no rational commands addressed to animals. You may have commands addressed to animals, but they are commands which trigger an instinctual response. It is important for us to remember this difference between man as the image of God and the animal world which does not bear the image of God. This is not an excuse to abuse the animal creation, but neither is it an excuse to romanticize the animal creation. The next movement in civil rights will be to the animal world. It is already making its way into the United States court system. Namely, that animals will be given the right to be free, the right to be uh, let loose into society, the right to be protected from any harm and danger. They will be accorded what uh, we regard as human civil rights. It will come. If you have people marrying trees, as happened a couple of weeks ago in Mexico, you're going to have all kinds of bizarre uh, 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 movements which are going to attempt to turn the world further upside down. <clears throat> so, the scriptures make a distinction between the animal creation and mankind. God breathes into Adam, into man, and Adam becomes a living soul because God has said we will make man in our image. He did not say that about your dog. He did not say that about your pet cat. He did not say that about your hamster or your rat or your mouse or whatever pet you happen to love. But he did say that about you and about your children and about all human beings who bear that image throughout the history of the world and the human race. All right, now, what about instinctual acts with those that bear the Imago Dei? What about instinctual acts with human beings? They eat, they drink, they exercise the organs of procreation even as the animal creation does. When they act rationally, do they act to the glory of God? When they act morally, do they act to the glory of God? Indeed, they do. But they often act irrationally. And they act immorally which is what Jude's point here is in the 10th verse. Namely, it's not like non-reasoning animals. It's like irrational, uh, soul-bearing persons. 
That's what he is concerned about, irrational and immoral behavior. Instead of eating to the glory of God, they're gluttons to the glory of themselves, feeding their own bellies because their God is their belly. Instead of drinking to the glory of God, they are drunkards to the glory of themselves and intoxicating themselves into inebriation and driving automobiles and killing twin girls in Oak Harbor. Ugly, ugly accident. They exercise the organs of procreation to the glory of God or immorally pervert them and direct them to the glory of themselves or what they regard as their own titillating self-pleasure. Now, at the end of this verse, Jude uses a word that is translated in the New American Standard, destroyed. You'll notice in the margin, if you have an NASB, that it can also be translated corrupted. Tying together, then, what he's been driving at in this verse, is he talking about the moral or rational nature of these intruders, and therefore the word corrupted would reflect upon their inherent spiritual state or their inherent moral state? Or is he... Uh, into indicating, as New American Standard uh, chose in its primary translation, their destiny, namely the result of this behavior which is perversely instinctual, it is its instinctual behavior which has been perverted, is their eternal destruction. All right, in order to solve this issue, or at least to reflect upon it, we need to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. And when somebody has the verse, if you'll read it out, please. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. All right, now, the very same word that is used in Jude 10, translated destroyed by the New American Standard translators, is used here in 1 Corinthians 3.17. So I'm going to ask Art to read the word again and to substitute for the word destroyed the marginal reading which the New American Standard provided, namely the word corrupted. Yes, now I'd like you to read it again, Mm -hmm. substituting the alternate translation for this Greek word. If anyone corrupts God's temple, God will corrupt him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Right, now does that make sense? God will corrupt him? Why does God have to? You're shaking your head, Dick. Why? I don't believe that God does that to anyone. Why? Well, God is holy. He's not 
He's not out to do evil things. He's not out to do evil things. Okay? All right. Any other reason? Okay. Well, man corrupted himself through Adam. Does God have to do any more? No. No, no. All God has to do is not uncorrupt him, right? Just, just leave him to himself, and he's totally corrupted, totally depraved. He, he is corrupted in degree. Okay, so that uh, that doesn't make sense in Paul's use of the term. So here's a place in the New Testament where the inspired writer uses a meaning of this Greek word, which is destroyed. And in context, you see that if it was corrupted that he was meaning, it does not make sense in context. Which takes us back to the question in Jude 10, and also explains why the New American translators have chosen the word destroyed over against the marginal reading of corrupted, though they placed it in the margin so that you may know that it does have that sense elsewhere in the Greek New Testament. In fact, if you take a Greek concordance and look up all the verses in which this Greek word appears, most of them will favor the meaning corrupted, referring to a moral degeneracy or a moral natural perversion. Now, you might rally to that translation, namely the marginal translation, because you think that Jude here is talking about the perversion, that is, the moral perversion, the corrupted perversion of these intruders. And there's much to be said for that. Indeed, he's been talking since verse 5 about examples of moral turpitude, that is, behavior which is out of step with God's own uh, holiness as well as God's righteousness. So, it is conceivable that the nuance of corruption is what the what the writer Jude is alluding to here. However, I do believe that the New American trans, New American Standard translators have chosen the proper word. Think about the sequence of the argument here. The things that they do not understand, namely the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of Jude, the doctrine of the apostles, Christ and Jude, are those things corrupting them? Or are they going to destroy them? Those things are going to be the very measure of their destruction, are they not? They're going to be the basis upon which God is going to dismiss them to everlasting fire. Now, it, is not, it, it does not mean that Jude is denying that there is moral corruption inside them. That's obvious by their behavior. But here he's looking at the destiny or the consequence of that corruption. He is not looking at the corruption in and of itself. So I think that the way Jude lays out this pattern about what they do know and what they do not know is another way of indicating that they're destined for consequences as a result of that. And in fact, they're destined for consequences which have eternal overtones. The overtone of eternal destruction. 
Not eternal corruption, but eternal destruction. Because the Apostle Paul also uses this word in the same way, namely, if you destroy God's temple, he's going to destroy you eternally. That's an eternal consequence of your own moral turpitude. Jude here is duplicating that. Now, I'm not saying that he's dependent upon the Apostle Paul for this idea. He wouldn't have to, he wouldn't have to be. He would be dependent upon the teaching of Christ and what he, had, what he knew from the apostolic doctrine. That would be consistent. <clears throat> so, uh, <clears throat> what, what I conclude is that the New American Standard Translation is accurate because it justifies the, uh, the, the direction of the argument that Jude is making here in this verse. Now, you're, uh, you're welcome to uh, push back on that if you're not uh, persuaded. Uh, if someone wants to be bold, like we had bold proclamations last week. Robert. Okay, what I'd like to push back on is the animal instinct part. Um, when Adam sinned, uh, it actually corrupted the entire universe. Right? So even animals were corrupted at that point. Not corrupted in a moral sense. Okay? There's no change in their nature. What happens is that they now fall out of harmony with the created order. Uh, now their instinctual acts are regard are are defensive. They were not defensive before. Uh, Adam sinned. Uh, they came and walked, paraded before Adam in the garden without any fear of him at all. It's the same way with Jesus in the wilderness after his temptation. The wild animals are with him. They are not afraid of him at all. He's not afraid of them at all. So the blight that the curse brings is not any change in nature per se, as it is in mankind. Okay, <clears throat> it is a change in uh, it's a change in the harmony that was placed in the created order between creature and creature. I know, I admit, and you're right to bring it out, Robert, there is a change at the creation. The change comes from the entrance of the curse. <clears throat> but there is no sinful nature in the animal in the animal kingdom. And then eschatologically, we're going to have the lion lay down with the lamb. Yes. So that, that's, that's symbolic language. I don't think there are really lions in heaven, but it's an a image of peace and the restoration of, of harmony. Now, I'll, I'll be happy to uh, repent of what I said if, if dogs do go to heaven or lions do uh, as well. But I, I do not think that that's the case uh, simply because they don't have a soul which is capable of being glorified. Yes, David. Um. <clears throat> Different modality of looking at this. I would say it's a case of Ron Boyd. It's uh, return. Uh, you reap what you sow, you reap later than you sow, and you reap more than you sow. And a person in unbelief, absent the interdiction of God the Holy Spirit to regenerate them, their unbelief amplifies as they live. Longer and longer. And these um, unregenerate, evil hearted 
uh, interlopers, uh, their unbelief increases uh, as they increase cyclic in nature. So their damnation is greater, as Jesus would say. Good. Any other observation? Yes, Dick. Well, the other thing I would say is that the Jews is used in a similar way, the word destroyed, back in verse 5. And that is it's going to destroy those who do not believe. So we're talking the same thing about the consequences. That's a good point, and uh, you catch me flat-footed because I'm not sure that the Greek word is the same here as it is back in verse 5. So um, I, I would need to check that. My professor of New Testament, has he got his Greek? No, I wasn't. Okay. I do, but I, I wasn't listening carefully after that question. I know what the Greek proposal you wanted, but uh, I do have a question for you. Um, why wouldn't uh, NIV, NIV is a terrible translation, I admit, but why wouldn't we interpret it similarly the way the NIV takes it, which is that the it's the things they don't understand. It's their corruption that destroys them, in a sense, I mean, very directly, rather than simply saying it's... It's 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 the gospel which they don't understand, which directly corrupts them. Yeah, I, I think he's placing an antithesis between that instinctual knowledge and what is ratiocinative, that is, what is rational and moral. And what is rational and moral, I think, is related to this doctrinal progression that Jude has been unfolding. These are all moral uh, issues in the Old Testament examples from 5, 6, and 7. So I think he's reflecting upon those examples in terms of the doctrinal rebellion or the doctrinal uh, disorder, the rebellion against God's teaching and God's uh, word that's involved in that. And I think he's bringing it to a kind of summary climax here in verse 10. He's going to go on in verse 11, as we'll see in a moment. So I, I, I think it's that kind of thing. It's not a bare instinctual uh, rebellion. It, it is an, an, a rebellion at the instinctual level in terms of these uh, <clears throat> natural actions, but uh, nonetheless, that which they do not understand is more this this doctrinal. Uh, what do I want to say there? This this doctrinal range of uh, the, the the teaching of Christ and the apostles. Right, so since they're made in the image of God, this not understanding is a moral rejection of the truth. Right. So if we just flatly... As well as an irrational rejection of it. Yeah. Right. So if we flatly translated it like the NIV, you might think, oh, just, just some ignorance is what destroys them, but it's just ignorance qua ignorance. You know, and, and that's not the truth. This is rebellious ignorance. Yes, that's right. It is rebellious ignorance. Thank you for that uh, adjective. Pete, you had your hand up? No? Okay. Art, you had your... You're skipping. Okay. All right. <laughs> I, I, I was waiting for a, a profound re, re, comment there or observation. That's all right. All right. Now, whether I'm right or wrong about this, you, you notice that here is a bit of an exegetical challenge and I've justified the direction I'm going with the solution I've taken, uh, for good or ill. All right, now, we move on to verse 11. And here we'll notice again on the second page of your outline that we have another interesting chiasm. Using these relative pronouns in Greek, 
where the these men in verse 10 also matches or mirrors the these men in verse 12. Now this time we have the Greek word autois in between them, or we could paraphrase those men. Now here we want to ask a question as we look, and I know it's a little hard because I stapled your outline together, but we look back to that same outline for verses 8 to 10 and this outline for verses 10 to 12. And you see that it's a pattern of A, B, A prime in both cases. So now we want to ask the question, since they're both similar, that is, they're three-line uh, chiasms, uh, what about 10, 11, and 12? Is this an antithesis? Remember, 8, 9, and 10 was an antithesis because the not clause in verse 9 was antithetical to verse 8 and verse 10. Do we have an antithesis here in verses 10, 11, and 12? Ben, we do not have an antithesis. Correct. Well, then what do we have? This is not an antithetical chiasm. What is it? You're risking your reputation, or Well, the thing that strikes strikes me is that the the case is different. Like in eight, in ten, and twelve, these men are doing something, and in eleven, something's being done to them. Okay. Um, They are actually doing something in 11 as well, uh, but you're referring to the fact that the woe is coming to them. I'm referring to the them. Yeah. Woe to them. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, There's no antithesis, but in fact, those three verses are talking about a pattern of similarity. A similarity between these men in verse 10 who revile things, uh, these men or those men in verse 11 who are going to be uh, reflected, uh, who are going to be related to uh, three other Old Testament examples, and once again, these men in verse 12 who are showing certain other characteristics in 12 and 13. All right, so this is not an antithetical chiasm. This is a chiasm of similarities. But you'll notice that we have another triplet. Even as in verse 8, 9, and 10, we had a triad. Here in 10, 11, and 12, we have another triad. And in this triad, the central verse 11 has its own triad. Namely, a triplet of Old Testament Example, a triplet of an Old Testament example. We had that in verses 5 to 7. We have another triplet of Old Testament example in verse 11. What is the difference between the two triads?
In yes, March in. In the second one, they're all individuals. Very good. In verse eleven, they are all individuals, are they not? What are they in verses five, six, and seven, March? They are groups of persons or beings. Very good. So he is moved from a, shall we say, corporate model to a particular or individualistic model. It's almost as if he doesn't want to leave out either groups or individuals. He wants to take examples which cover both kinds of categories. Now, I'm saying almost. I'm not sure that that's why he does it, but that he does do it is is present here, as you can see, as Marge pointed out. So verses 5, 6, and 7 are dealing with groups of persons or groups of beings. The angels are uh, beings. Uh, I'm not sure that we can talk about angelic personalities, but maybe uh, that's something for me to think a little bit about. (laughs) But uh, in any event, they are uh, beings, even as the others in in those verses are beings. But in verse 11, they are individual persons. All right, now, um, before we go to our break, the last issue that I want to think about is the chronology of verse 11. What do I mean by the chronology of verse 11? Can you read my mind? Marge, you're shaking your head. You've been, in, you've been around me too long. Go ahead. Well, if you're asking about chronology, it's not in chronological order. It is not in chronological order, is it, Marge? Why? Korah comes before Balaam. Korah comes before Balaam, yes. What we have in the order of Cain, Balaam, and Korah is chronologically out of sequence. Cain does come first in chronological order. Genesis chapter 4, okay? Uh, Korah, where do I find Korah? What book of the Bible? Numbers, okay? What chapter in the book of Numbers? Chapter 16 is fine to read your marginal notes. That's what you've got a marginal Bible for. Okay. It's a good study guide. Chapter 16 of Numbers. Where do I find Balaam? Where are we introduced to Balaam? What book of the Bible do I find Balaam? Bob, where do I find Balaam? Okay. Terry, where do I find Balaam? It's been a long time since you read the Balaam story. Okay. Homework assignment. Before next week, read the whole Balaam story. All right. Where do I find it? In Numbers again. Okay, what chapter? We first meet him in chapter 22, but he goes on for three chapters. Chapters 22, 23, and 24. And as we'll see when we come back from the break, that's not the only place we find him. So what we have here then is Numbers 22 before Numbers 16. And we have an out-of-chronological-order sequence. All right, well, we'll take our break, and you can ponder why it's out of order. Has he made a mistake in his history? No, he hasn't done that. That's fairly silly to suggest. He's done this for a reason. So, 
When we come back, we'll see what you've come up with after you've put something in your mouth that may help you think better. About why out of chronological order? Oh, <laughs> Cheryl, that, that's a very good point. You wanted to make sure that somebody like me asked a silly question like that, right? <laughs> Pete, did you want to offer your suggestion? Yeah, well, you're putting the destroy at the end. The progression between Canaan and then Balaam, who was a prophet, the, was unable to do a prophecy of cursing him. And then at the end, Korah, he was destroyed. Showing that progression. Okay, you all got what Pete was suggesting there? Okay, Ben? Uh, well, if the wilderness experience in between one fall and another fall. He's putting what in between? I, I, the wilderness experience. He's putting the wilderness experience. Well, isn't Korah in the wilderness too? Okay, they're still on the plains of Moab when Balaam's involved, so they're not over the Jordan yet. Any other suggestions? Two good ideas there. Well, sir, All right, go ahead. Well, following along what Pete said, you know, that the destroy is logical at the end, I'm just wondering whether the way of Cain coming first and the rushing for the prophet might be logical too if it mimics the progression of these men who's doing Okay, good thought. Uh, somebody else? Dick? It's a dramatic. Uh, certainly it was a uh, supernatural event and the destruction was all. 250 of them. With respect to Korah? Yes. yes. Okay. Anything else? Frank wants to make a suggestion. Oh, really? No, oh, he is. Oh, no, I, I just. For Scott. Obscure okay. comment that Cain and Korah begin with a kappa. <laughs> <laughs> or in Hebrew with a cough, right? <laughs> it's ironic that my professor suggested that because I thought about it myself last night. <laughs> And I said, no, 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 <laughs> that's too esoteric. <clears throat> All right, um, <clears throat> Pete, I think, is uh, well on the right track here, but let me uh, kind of add to what he observed, that this is a rhetorical sequence. It is not a chronological sequence. Pete was alluding to that. Notice what he does with his verbs here. <clears throat> you walk in the way of Cain. Or go in the way of Cain. You rush headlong into the error of Balaam. And you perish in the rebellion of Korah. This is a rhetorical sequence, which ends, as Pete pointed out, with the most ultimate at the end, namely the destruction. But it's a rhetorical sequence of perverse behavior. You walk in the perverse 
way, you go in the perverse way of Cain. You rush into the perverse error of Balaam. And you perish in the perverse rebellion of Korah. Walk, rush, perish. It is a progressive sequence, but it is a progressive rhetorical sequence with the stinger on the end, with the ultimate climactic consequence on the end. So, yes, there's a rhyme uh, and reason to what he does here. It is not that he's unaware of the strict chronology, but he's using the characters to make a rhetorical point. And this is a good illustration of the skill of Jude. We pointed this out earlier when we began our series. We indicated that he is a very skilled rhetorician. He's a very skilled writer, both literarily and rhetorically. And here's a very good illustration of that rhetorical skill. All right, now... Let's begin with Cain as he does. But let's look at Cain as he is described in the New Testament. So if you turn back to Hebrews 11, verse 4, when somebody has the passage, please read it out and then let's think about it. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, That's a familiar verse to you. Let's ask ourselves, what is it in particular about Cain's sacrifice or Abel's sacrifice that was better than Cain's? Notice the writer of the Hebrews says it was a better sacrifice, which means that Cain's was the worst sacrifice. The not better sacrifice. Why is that the case? It was offered with faith. It's offered with faith. Okay. But the adjective better sacrifice goes with sacrifice. There's something better about what Abel sacrificed. Yes, that he offers it in faith is true. You were going to say? Somebody said, was going, was, blood I, sacrifice. It was a blood, it was a blood sacrifice. sacrifice. Cain's was not a blood sacrifice. Grain. Yes, it was vegetables or grain or whatever. It was not a blood sacrifice. Well, what's important about that? Why would that be a better sacrifice? That was the ultimate sacrifice. Come Christ on the cross. Okay. Why did he need the blood sacrifice? What does the writer of Hebrews say? Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Without the remission, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Hebrews 9.22. So here he's actually enlarging upon that point, And he's making that point with respect to the first recorded sacrifice. Namely, that Cain's sacrifice is not propitiatory. What do I mean by propitiatory? Not effectual. Mm, not quite on the word propitiatory. What's propitiate mean? Pay for our sins. Pay for our sins? No. Pay for sin? Okay. How so? To turn away, to turn away the wrath of God? To. Yeah. Wrath. 
to satisfy the wrath of God by doing what? Paying a penalty, but I can't pay it. Can I? If I have to pay it, how long will it take me to pay it? Dig it. I'm going to get there. But if I have to pay it, how long will it take me to pay it? In eternity. Correct. All right? So I can't pay it. Abel can't pay it. So what does he do? He runs away. No. Not Abel. He brings a... He brings a substitute. He brings a substitute. So this is what kind of a sacrifice? It is a substitutionary sacrifice. It is a vicarious sacrifice. It is a substitutionary vicarious sacrifice which pays a penalty, correct? It is a vicarious, penal, substitutionary atonement, right? Even from Genesis 4 on. Okay. How did they know that? How did they know that? Very good question. How did they know that? They were instructed. They were instructed. Okay, how so? That the door, Abel was told that there was a sin offering there for him. At the door? Well, as he was as his house there. Yeah. Where's that in the text? <laughs> All right, now. All right, now. How did they know? Had they ever been the beneficiaries of a kind of sacrificial right themselves, even before Abel's offering? Yes. How so? God sacrificed an animal to make clothing for them. God clothed them with skins. Correct. So... There is a sacrificial image, there is a sacrificial rite before the rite of sacrifice in the case of Abel. <clears throat> it is likely then that that flaming sword and uh, that flaming sword and guardian cherubim at the entrance to the Garden of Eden on the east side is also indicative of this sacrificial ritual, sacrificial symbolism that is present in God clothing them with skins before he sends them out of the garden. There's no way back to the tree of life except through fire and under the knife. No way back. Abel knows that. He knows that it has to be a living sacrifice put to death, a go under the knife, and it has to be consumed in fire. It has to be burned up on the altar. Because if he's going to get back to the tree of life, he has to go by that, through that sword and through that flame, does he not? And if he's going to go through that, he's not going to live if he has to do it himself. It's got to be done in a substitute. All right, so there's a, a rich profundity about this very simple story in the life of Cain and Abel. Why, of all the stories about their life and their career, is this the story that's preserved in Genesis 4? Because it's the story that points out how it is 
that the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of the serpent. It is going to be a substitutionary kind of act. It is going to be the act of one on behalf of another. It is going to be a vicarious act. It is going to cost him pain. But it's going to benefit his seed because he's going to crush the serpent's power. All right, so Abel is laying hold of that promise even as he's laying hold of his lamb. And as he offers that lamb and slays it, he is saying to God, I confess that I deserve what this lamb receives. I confess that I deserve death. In my place, I offer this. For my sin, I offer this, O Lord. Let it be consumed holy as I should be consumed holy in the fire of your wrath as a propitiation to satisfy your justice. Let this satisfy your justice instead of me, my life. And that's the reason it's a better sacrifice. It's a better sacrifice because he lays his hands upon a living, bleeding victim. And he slays that victim with his own hand and offers it upon the altar and burns it in toto. Because he's confessing by what he does that there's no way to God except by death and consumption of God's wrath. No way. And he lays hold of the substitute to go that way in his place. Does Cain lay hold of the substitute? He is not. He is contemptuous. He is contemptuous. When God accepts Abel's sacrifice, he hates his brother. He's contemptuous. He knows the way of approach to God. He knows that there's no way unto the holy God except by way of a blood sacrifice. And he says, not on your life. My vegetables are good enough. I don't have to kill an animal. Look at me. I'm good enough. I'll just give you the, the few shells of grain that I have or the few stalks of uh, vegetables that I have. That's enough. That's enough. Don't underestimate the contempt of Cain's character and his rebellion. Because all contemptuous people are whiners. And that's what Cain is when he is banished from the Garden of Eden. He's a whiner. He plays the victim card. Oh, what will happen to me? If anybody finds me, they'll kill me. What I need protection. All right, so <clears throat> Cain will not offer in faith because he will not offer what God requires. He will offer what he requires. He, Cain, requires. I'll give him what I want to give him. I'm not going to give him what he demands. I'm not going to give him what he requires. And that brother of mine, that younger brother of mine, that goody-goody brother of mine. So you see all that's boiling up in Cain is a response to his own self-centered self-righteousness. All right, so Hebrews 11, in that little cameo, is opening up a huge window on the character and the attitudes and the disposition of soul that is in Cain and in Abel. And that disposition is contrastive. It's radically antithetical. 
They are two opposite individuals in terms of character, belief, and desire to do the will of God. And if that were not enough, that is Hebrews 11 were not enough, if we turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, we find more in our character sketch of Cain. So when someone has it, please read it out. Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now there's a character sketch which expands upon Cain's character. It tells us that character, that, that Cain was what? He was evil. He was a murderer. He was a murderer who was jealously hateful of his brother. His brother's deeds were righteous. His deeds were evil. He couldn't stand Abel being accepted and approved by God. That caused him to boil. I'm the firstborn. I should have the primogenitor. I don't have to bring everything that he brings. Let him bring his lamb. I don't have to do that. I'm number one. And when God accepts Abel, then he's jealous of his brother. So jealous that he hates him. So hateful that he murders him. And then when God rebukes him, he whines about it. Because he is of the evil one. He is the ally of the serpent. Cain is a snake in the grass. Cain belongs to the seed of the serpent, and he acts like the seed of the serpent. A murderer, a jealous hater, a man possessed of an evil, evil heart. All right, so when we examine Jude's use, of this uh, individual, they have gone in the way of Cain. He is reflecting upon these intruders who have evil hearts like Cain, who belong to the evil one like Cain, who are hatefully jealous like Cain. Now, there's no evidence that they've murdered anybody in this community to which Jude is writing, but they definitely have murderous inclinations. They have murder in their hearts. Whether they act upon that, we are not told. But that evil heart of unbelief is also an evil heart of murderous intent. It can not kill with the knife or the gun or with the instrument, but it can destroy by wishing one dead. Thou fool, Raka, as Jesus points out in the Sermon on the Mount. An attitude of murderous desire. I wish that person were dead. All right, any questions about Cain? Then next is Balaam. And let's take a look at Balaam in the New Testament, beginning with Second Peter chapter 2, an epistle which is in many ways very similar to the epistle of Jude. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 15. 
And when someone has it, please read it out. For taking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. All right, now here, uh, gain from wrongdoing, or the older translation, the wages of unrighteousness. This suggests that Balaam is guilty of what sin? Greed. Greed. He's avaricious, correct. He's greedy. Now, how is that present in the story of Balaam? Let's go back to Numbers chapter 21, 22 rather. Keep in mind that Balaam was asked by Balak, the king of the Moabites, to come and curse the children of Israel as they were spread out on the plains of Moab before crossing over into the promised land. And we have this uh, interesting story from 22, 23, and 24, which you've been assigned as homework. There won't be an exam next week, but uh, you need to reread the story of of uh, Balaam and Balak. <clears throat> and in chapter 22, we have the uh, incident of the donkey who keeps running into the wall or into objects and uh, <clears throat> damaging uh, Balaam's person or at least painting Balaam's person in the process so that Balaam <clears throat> uh, wishes that he could kill the donkey. And finally, the donkey has its mouth opened by the Lord uh, to speak to Balaam. All right, now, the key verse here is verse 32 of chapter 22. Notice what the angel of the Lord says there. Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. Now, the word contrary here could also be translated perverse. Your way was perverse to my ways. What's the angel of the Lord referring to? The donkey had uh, banged up Balaam three times. The angel of the Lord was in front of the donkey, which is the reason the donkey was turning aside and Balaam was being hurt. So why is the angel of the Lord standing in the way when in the previous part of this chapter, God tells Balaam to go up to the plains of Moab and to do or say what God tells him to say? It would seem that Balaam is going on the way on his donkey to do what God told him to do. Except that that 32nd verse tells you he was not. That 32nd verse tells you that he was going to do contrary to what God had told him to do. He was going to pervert what God had told him to do. How so? Second Peter, first Peter two, second Peter two fifteen, because he loved the wages of unrighteousness. That is, He had said he was going to go up and do what God told him to do, but really he was going to go up to get all the silver and gold that Balak had promised him as a reward if he would curse them. 
So that in fact, he was playing God for the fool as he left on his donkey. And the angel of the Lord knew it and stopped him. Three times it stopped the donkey. And warned him that his perverse desire to go up and play the game in order to get the unrighteous gain, the unrighteous wages and pay, is really what was in Balaam's heart as he set out for the first time on that journey. So that's how Peter is indicating to us in that passage that he was seeking the unrighteous gain, the greed of Balak's promised reward. That Balak had promised to load him up with silver and gold if he would just curse the children of Israel. That's too much for Balak to resist, even though God comes and tells him, you go up and say what I'm going to say. Okay, Lord, I'll go up and say what you say, but really what I'm going to go up there and bring home that pile of gold, that's what I'm going to do. Oh, no, you're not, God says. I'm going to stop you until you do agree to do what I tell you to do. But nonetheless, that was what was in Balaam's heart as he initially set out. Okay. Now, the other place where Balaam appears is in Revelation, chapter 2, verse 14. And once again, when you have it, somebody please read it out. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. They eat things, sacrifice idols and to commit acts of immorality. All right, now what was Balaam doing according to Revelation 2.14? There are two things there that he was doing. What are they? Teaching the children of Israel what? To commit fornication. To commit fornication, okay, that's the second thing. What's the first thing? There's a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Nah, yeah. What's the first thing? Eat food sacrifice. Eat food sacrifice to idols. idols. What are you going to do with the idol? You're going to be bowing down before the idol, right? So you're going to be worshiping the idol because you're going to eat the food sacrifice to it. And you're going to be committing immorality or fornication, sexual immorality again. Where on earth did that come from? Okay, we didn't read that in Numbers 22 to 24, and you won't when you do your homework. So, we got to go back to Numbers, but not chapters 22 to 24, as you will know when you read them. All right, uh, Ben, you're ahead of me. Uh, what, were you, what were you saying? I didn't hear it. Phineas. Phineas, okay. All right, now we've got to go to Numbers chapter 31. In Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, we read this. These caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. All right, after Balaam does what he does in Numbers 22 to 24... We find that Balaam is described as one who had encouraged the children of Israel to sin against the Lord in the matter of Peor. All right, now keep your finger in Numbers 31, and let's go back to chapter 25. 
in chapter 25, the children of Israel are on the plains of Moab, verse 1, and they play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. And in verse 3, they join themselves to Baal of Peor. All right, now remember that John, in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 14, had indicated that Balaam had encouraged them to eat meat sacrificed to idols, to worship idol. The idol in question is Baal, the Baal of Peor. And also included in that worship of Baal, even as all worship of Baal included this, was fornication. Baal was a god who used prostitutes, male and female prostitutes. You worshiped Baal by engaging in sexual immorality. That's what the groves of Baal were all about. So here, on the plains of Moab, the children of Israel are worshiping Baal in accordance with the fertility rites that are usual with the Baal cult. Balaam isn't one of these squeaky, queen, squeaky clean prophets of God, is he? In fact, he's a prophet of God only because God makes him his prophet and uses him for his purposes. But otherwise, he's a real scumbucket. So when we go back to chapter 31, and notice that the writer of uh, Numbers had indicated that Balaam was involved in the sin of Peor, counseled Israel to commit sin at Peor. It's the twofold sin of Revelation 2.14, namely to commit adultery, idolatry rather, worshiping Baal, and adultery or fornication in committing harlotry with the daughters of Midian. All right, now, in chapter 31 of Numbers, one more verse to note, verse 8. In Numbers 31, 8, the children of Israel make war with the children of Midian, as the Lord commanded Moses. And they killed the kings of Midian, along with the rest of their slain, Evi and Rechem and Zer and Hur and Reba and the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor. With the sword. Balaam was killed by the children of Israel after he prophesied in chapters 22 to 24. After he encouraged Israel to sin on the plains of Moab in the incident of Baal Peor, not only idolatry, but fornication and idolatry. Balaam reaps what he had sown. He receives the sentence of death for his iniquities. All right, so when we come back to the epistle of Jude, rushing headlong into the error of Balaam is encouraging idolatry, or at least encouraging less than worshiping the one true God in the way he asked to be worshipped, and encouraging sexual immorality, which is certainly present in this community with respect to the intruders that have infiltrated themselves into that body. That leaves Korah, the third on the list in verse 11. Where else is Korah mentioned in the New Testament? Nowhere else, only here. However, you may want to make a note of 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, 
where the Apostle Paul alludes to the rebellion that occurred after the rebellion of Korah in Numbers 16. But Korah is only mentioned here, and that rebellion, which Jude mentions, ended in the destruction, the perishing of the household of Korah and those who are associated with him. Woe to them. Woe to them who walk in the way of Cain, who are jealous and hateful and murderous of heart. Woe to them who rush into the air of Balaam, who love the wages of sin, who are greedy, avaricious, looking out to benefit financially from exploiting the community, who are encouraging sinful idolatry as well as sinful immorality, particularly of a sexual variety. And woe to them who rush into the rebellion of Korah, rejecting the authority of the Lord and Master Jesus Christ, rejecting the Lordship of God the Father, rejecting the authority of the Holy Spirit, rejecting the authority and Lordship of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Woe to them. What's woe mean? May they be cursed. May they be cursed. May they be judged with the ultimate judgment. Woe to them. Who uses this language? The Old Testament prophets use it frequently. Who uses it in the New Testament? The Lord Jesus Christ uses it. Twenty-nine times Jesus uses it. Woe to them. Woe to them. Woe to them. It is a declaration of ultimate and final curse. So that in this, in this sentence, woe to them, even as Jude's brother had used this term, we have the mirror narrative biographical paradigm repeated and replayed. As it was in the words of his older brother, so it is in the words of the younger brother, Jude speaks the way his brother does. He probably heard him say this on a number of occasions. Woe to them who act in this sinful, depraved manner. The way of Cain, the way of Balaam, the way of Korah. Woe to them. And the warning to this community is, woe to those who are in your midst who are doing the very same thing. Woe to them. In verses 12 and 13, as we will go on to next week, we'll see a further character analysis of these intruders, the kind of character they display even as they attempt and seem to gain positions of leadership in this community. Woe to them! And to the modern church, woe to any who follow in these ways. And who show the character of these intruders in this community. Woe to you. The curse of everlasting judgment hangs over you and threatens you because Almighty God says you walk in this way. You rush in this direction. You uh, rebel in this direction. Woe to you. And so we will see that play out in the characterization of verses 12 and 13 next time. Summing up then, what we have in verse 11 is a heightened rebelliousness. 
playing off of verse 10, the irrationality and immorality of it. It is a heightened rebelliousness, irrationality, immorality, which mimics or mirrors the evil character of Cain, the evil behavior of Balaam, and the evil consequence of Korah. He has now reached a plateau with respect to the dimension of expanding upon the characterization of the Old Testament examples. The three in verses 5, 6, and 7, the three here in verse 11, they are, uh, am- they are the, an amplification of the very same character that he sees in these intruders. And now in verses 12 and 13, he's going to shift gears slightly. Now he's going to show by character analysis what kind of people they are. Any questions? Any comments on your part? Yes, go ahead, David. I take a little bit of offense at what you said about Cain being a whiner. I spent three years studying how to whine. Your Honor, this is not fair. I won't comment, Counselor. I'll leave your statement on the record. <laughs> yes. Why, if he, he was a prophet only because God made him a prophet, why did God make him a prophet? Yes. Uh, the question is, why is Balaam made a prophet by the Lord uh, if he wasn't desiring to be so? Uh, Because God is using Balaam to testify two ways. He's using Balaam to testify for Israel, but he's also using Balaam to testify against Balak and the Moabites. It's a two-way pattern that God is using, and he uses a very famous prophetic figure from the secular world. We know from archaeology that Balaam was a famous name at this time in the Near East. He was well worth what Balak had offered him because he was well known across the ancient Near Eastern Crescent, not just in Palestine or in Moab. He was known in Mesopotamia as well. (laughs) Therefore, uh, God is going to use this, shall we say, poster boy for his own purposes. And uh, Balaam is going to resist it, but God is going to twist him into the mold that he wants him to serve. And obviously this is for purposes of bringing forth the revelation of his oracles, which are in chapters 22, 23, and 24, uh, the wonderful poetic oracles of Balaam, uh, which are also messianic. So uh, there's there's a method in God's uh, using him. He makes the wrath of men to praise him. He uses Balaam even as he uses Judas Iscariot for his own purposes. But it's a question that puzzles, you know, as you read, as you read what he says in those oracles, you wonder where it comes from. Well, it doesn't come from him. You see, it comes from God speaking, God giving him those words, God uh, putting those words into his mind, in his heart, so he will speak even what he would not have spoken normally, uh, because he would have been inclined to take Balak's money and curse them. So God makes him not take Balak's money and bless them. All right. Next week, verses 12 and 13, Lord willing, let's close with prayer. 
Father Jude reminds us that we need to be circumspect about our own character and about our own hearts. And these Old Testament illustrations are there to tie together the character of sinful hearts in every era, Old and New Testament alike. We are grateful that in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, an evil heart of unbelief has been removed from us, that which is in us by nature. Our instincts, which are often immoral and irrational, have been transformed by the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, and we bless you for that new heart and new nature and new instinct. But we thank you most of all, O Lord, that you have delivered us from the wrath to come. And from that character and lifestyle of judgment, which fell upon Cain, Balaam, and Korah, fell upon that wilderness generation, the damned angels, and the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, you have delivered us from that fearful, final heart of unbelief and weight of eternal judgment. Father, we can never uh, reflect sufficiently our thanks in response to what you have done nevertheless in our feeble and frail efforts and in our life we offer to you our entire life as a living sacrifice and pray that through Jesus Christ you will use it for your glory. You will turn us away from what Jude is pleading with this community to turn away from and you will seal us with the adoption of sons and daughters in the down payment of that future life in heaven at your footstool when all and every evil inclination of our heart will be completely gone. We will be perfected in holiness and righteousness before your blessed face forever and ever. We long for that day, O Lord, when you bring us into that glory arena before your throne of radiance And we pray, O Lord, that by your grace and through the love of Jesus Christ, you will keep us faithful to the end. But we ask it in the name of the one who gave his life as a penal substitute for our life, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.